says over down here. Are we on that? Okay. Good morning, dear friends. Last time I was with you, you were in a different room. I'm not sure you fit in that room anymore. Can we just briefly go to the Lord in prayer one more time? Oh, God of all grace, Father in heaven who has loved us with a love that is everlasting, eternal, and unfailing. Even as my brother prayed, won't you give us ears to hear your word? Won't you give me strength and wisdom and discernment to preach your word faithfully so that your dear and precious ones might be built up in your word? Oh God, if there are any here who are dead, who are not yet ones who have understood and repented and believed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, won't you be kind and grant them new faith today? Won't you unite them to our Lord Jesus Christ? Save them. This, O Lord, we pray together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my friends, uh, it's good to be with you guys again. This is my second time, I think, here at PBC. Third time, if you count one time where I just sat on a panel and listened to other wiser, older men answer questions. But uh, this morning, I have the joy of sharing with you from the book of Daniel. If you've got your Bibles, turn there with me. Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter. I chose the book of Daniel because that's what we're preaching back at my home. And I thought I'd share with you a little bit about what we're learning about together back home at my home at our RCF. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 1. Before we begin reading the text, a couple of questions that we should ask. Simple question, question number one, what is the book of Daniel all about? If you've ever studied the book of Daniel, you'll know real quickly, it's full of stories that you've known since you were a kid if you were raised anywhere near the church. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you were a kid raised in the 90s, Rack, Shack, and Benny. The bunny, the bunny, finish it. Oh, I love the bunny. I didn't eat my bread or my fish, just the bunny. That comes from the book of Daniel. The story of Daniel and the lion's den. Chapter 6, the book of Daniel. The writing on the wall. Anybody ever use that expression? Oh, that guy's going to see the writing on the wall. That expression comes from Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapters 1 through 6 is full of stories that are familiar and beloved. And boy, do Sunday school teachers love them. Daniel chapters 7 through 12 are not as well known, not as beloved. Visions that are hard to understand and complicated fill those chapters. But the theme of Daniel is not hard to understand. The message of Daniel is clear. It's this. God is sovereign. Even when life is terrible for us, even when our nation goes to the toilet, even when everything is going kaput, God is sovereign. He reigns. He rules. He's in control. And he's working all things for his glorious purposes and the good of his beloved people. That's what the book of Daniel is all about. 
And really, that's what Daniel chapter 1 is all about. We ask the second question for introduction purposes. What is Daniel chapter 1, our text today, all about? God is sovereign. In our text today, we know it very well as the passage in which people learn how to diet. Right? Eat only vegetables and drink water and you'll gain weight. But that's not what Daniel 1 is all about. It has nothing to do with the Daniel fast. Daniel chapter 1 is a message that God is sovereign even when your world is falling apart around you and everything that you know and love. I don't know if you guys have seen the t-shirt walking around, but there was this guy who wore a t-shirt. We were, I can't remember where I was, but uh, I was out and about, you know, disobeying rules about being out about these days. And this guy wore a t-shirt that says, normal is never coming back. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But Jesus is. Daniel chapter 1 teaches us, hey, what if normal never comes back? What's my hope? Who's in control if my favorite politicians aren't in control of the government? Who's in control when the policies of the land are not the ones I prefer and favor? That's what Daniel chapter 1 is about. So without any further introduction, let me just simply say, here we're going to meet four friends. We're going to study Daniel, and we're going to see that he is taken to Babylon. But he's not taken in by Babylon. That's what the story in chapter 1 is about. Look at verse 1 with me, please. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Let's take just a moment to get a little bit of historical background of what's going on in redemptive history. The year here is 605 B.C. Several hundred years before this moment in 605, Israel was a united kingdom. They had British accents and everything. 120 years of glory, a golden age under three well-known kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, each who ruled 40 years. After Solomon's death, the kingdom was divided. Ten northern tribes made up the kingdom of Israel in the north. And Judah and Benjamin, two tribes, became the southern kingdom of Judah. Unfortunately, Israel's kings, the northern kingdom's kings, were a bunch of terrible, depraved, wicked wretches. So as an act of divine judgment, Israel was conquered in 722 by Assyria. Judah's kings weren't much better than Israel's kings, but they endured much longer because there were at least a few worthy rulers that God preserved for himself. Kings like Uzziah, whom the prophet Isaiah grieved in Isaiah 6. Kings like Hezekiah. You might remember that in the scriptures, it is said of Hezekiah, never before and never since in all of the land was there a king like Hezekiah. A unique one he is. And then kings like Josiah. Maybe you remember it says in the scriptures, never before and never since in all the land was there a king like Josiah. Another unique one. 
These good kings, these good kings were the reason that God was kind and showed forbearance to the southern kingdom of Judah. In 609, righteous King Josiah, he was king of Judah and reigning righteously, but even righteous Josiah had clay feet. And if you know Daniel chapter 2, that's an intentional pun. Josiah had his weaknesses and his stubbornness and pride. He refused to listen to a warning from the Lord. And he, ruled, he rode out foolishly in battle against an Egyptian pharaoh named Necho. As soon as Nico saw him in battle, he had his archers shoot him down, and he died shortly thereafter. After Josiah's death, the people of Judah made Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, king. I don't know if any of you ladies are with child at the moment, but if you are and it's a boy and you're wondering, what should I name this one? I'm pretty sure if you choose Jehoahaz, you'd have the only Jehoahaz in church. But after only three months on the throne, poor Jehoahaz was deposed by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Necho then made Judah a vassal kingdom, meaning that they had to pay tribute to him. They weren't really their own independent kingdom. They really were just a part of Egypt. And he made Jehoiakim, Jehoahaz's brother, king of Judah. Jehoiakim was a wicked man says the book of Kings and Chronicles. A few years into wicked Jehoiakim's reign, and there was a new wicked kid in town in the area. One that we all know, Nebuchadnezzar. He had become the mighty king of Babylon, and he was looking to take over the region. He was looking to exalt himself, his mighty name, and his glory. He had already conquered many Assyrian territories, and in 605, he was looking to conquer Judah, which was a vassal kingdom, as I mentioned earlier, of Egypt. That's where we are here in Daniel chapter 1. That's the historical background. So, you know, what happened that led us to this place? We keep reading in verse 2. It says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. A couple of brief observations here. First of all, notice the mention of the land of Shinar. Have you walked up to the king of Babylon at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, and said, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar, could you, uh, I'm lost, I'm new here, I'm from Judah, I don't even know my way around, could you point me to where Shinar is? He would have had no idea what you were talking about. This mention of the land of Shinar is not a geographic term contemporary to Nebuchadnezzar. It's an ancient name. Daniel here is referencing a name of this particular location that doesn't come from Nebuchadnezzar's day, comes from the days of Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11 when Nimrod established great kingdoms and he built there a great tower, the Tower of Babel. The great tower that was the, the very focal point and center and object of opposition to God. Daniel references the land of Shinar not because this just so happens to be in the similar or same place 
because it's, but because it's also of the same nature. Nebuchadnezzar isn't just in the same location. He's got the same heart as Nimrod. He's looking to make Babylon the new and better tower of Babel, exalting itself above God and God's people. That's evidenced by what he does here in verse 2. When he takes the, the articles from the temple of God and he brings them into the house of his God, what is he doing when he does that? Is he just a collector? Like, hey, over here on this aisle, I've got things I collected from Assyria. Over here, I got things that I found in China. You'll never believe this. Is that what he's doing? Not at all. He's not a collector. He's trying to indicate, I bring these things into the house of my gods to show them where they belong. At the feet of my gods. This is an expression of dominance and arrogance. You saw it earlier in the history of Israel with, with the Philistines when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the house of the God of Dagon. They were trying to make the Ark of Co the Covenant bow and, you know, to signify, hey, this God, your God, Yahweh, is not as powerful and mighty as our God, Dagon, the fish God. But God showed himself mighty and he caused Dagon to fall. Well, that's, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to signify. Let me show you where your gods belong. He's trying to exert domination and humiliation. But really the thing we need to notice in verse 2 is that God's doing all this. You think, man, this sounds terrible. This is bad news. But the opening, verse, opening part of the verse, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim. It wasn't that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was so mighty and so powerful that he just overcame Jehoiakim. And God was sitting there helplessly going, you know, I'd like to help, but I just can't. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is a pretty powerful guy. That's not what verse 2 says. God asserts his sovereign control even over this moment, saying God gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. More on that in a moment. Let's keep reading verses 3 through 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. What is Nebuchadnezzar doing? Do you recognize what's happening here? What's happening? Two things, really. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to strengthen his own kingdom, his own empire. He's taking the best and the brightest of the other nations that he's conquered and bringing them into his nation so that his nation will be bolstered by the strength of other nations. That's part of it. The other part of it is he's doing this. He's trying to assimilate those other nations that he's conquering. It's not enough to just merely win and have domination over another nation. He wants to make Babylonians out of the nations that he conquers. So he does that by taking the best and brightest of that nation and say, come and learn all about Babylon. Come and learn everything about what it means to be a Babylonian so that the best and brightest of Judah 
are now indoctrinated in Babylon's ways. Assimilation is the aim. How does he go about doing that? How is he going to make Babylonians out of people? Read with me verses 5 through 7. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Here we see Babylonians, Babylon's method of assimilation. How they work to make Babylonians out of their captives. There are four tactics they use. I wonder, did you recognize them? Tactic number one, education, information. Their streaming service is the only one they're watching. The only streaming service available, available in Babylon is the Babylonian streaming service. Information, education, inundation in that. So that the only thing you ever hear about is Babylon this, Babylon that, Babylon literature this, Babylon language that, Babylon religious belief this, Babylon philosophical view this. Second, time. They inundate you with their streaming service for a long time. Three years they send you to their seminary. They attempt to wear you down over time. Third, they try to win you with comfort, luxury, and pleasure. When the king brings the wise men from other nations into his place, he's like, he was like, hey, listen, while you're here, I want you to know, maybe you thought it was great living in your kingdom, but now that you're in Babylon, you're literally going to eat like a king. You're literally going to drink like a king. Comfort, luxury, all of these things, yours and more. Enjoy it. Fourth, identity. Babylon says, I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to tell you who you are. Maybe that's who the covenant people tell you you are. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, Daniel. But I say... Your name is this. Now, this is very significant because the Hebrew names that these men had revealed some aspect of God's glorious character. And every time somebody called their name, they heard some beautiful truth about their God. Every time somebody called Daniel's name, Daniel's name means, and he would have understood this. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Merely the declaration of his name is a confession about who his God is. But when he is given the name Belteshazzar, 
that name is associated with a Babylonian deity, and he would have understood its meaning. So every time now someone in Babylon called Daniel's name, only they called him Belteshazzar, he heard some lie about what a Babylonian deity is. And over and over and over again, every time they called your name, hearing these things that are purportedly true about Babylonian deities. Each of the boys had names that meant something beautiful about the Lord. For example, Hananiah's name means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael's name means who is what God is. Azariah's name means Yahweh helps. These men were robbed of those precious names and given names that invoke Babylonian deities. So would it work? They're being educated, inundated. The only streaming service they got is Babylonian Netflix. They're being treated like kings. Oh, it feels good to be in Babylon. Is it going to feel so good that they don't miss Judah? They're going to be there for three years. Are they going to be worn down over time? They've been given a new identity. Will they embrace that identity? Would Babylon succeed in making good little Babylonians out of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? And the remaining portion of our passage, we'll see that these men were taken to Babylon... But by the powerful preserving grace of our sovereign God, they were not taken in by Babylon. Read with me verse 8, which says this, and it's a beautiful moment. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So the answer is no, it's not going to work. But a question arises in this text, at least it was for me. I wonder, did you wonder the same thing? When you read verse 8, did you also wonder, why did Daniel make food and wine the hill upon which he was willing to die? Why didn't he fight over being taken to Babylon? Why didn't he refuse the pagan education? Why didn't he say, I'm not listening to your Netflix streaming Babylonian service. I don't want it. Keep it away from me. No, I would rather die than do that. Why? Why food and wine? Why make that the hill upon which he's going to die? Why didn't he fight about his pagan name? Don't call me that. My name's Daniel. It's a great name. I'm sticking to it. Right? Why didn't he ask, hey, can I have favor? I want you to please just call me Daniel. It's not too much to ask. Why make food and wine his point of protest? I agree with those commentators who assert that Daniel was likely most tempted by the food and wine. His pagan education didn't tempt him to become a Babylonian. Daniel knew what he believed. He was anchored and rooted in sound doctrine. He knew who his God was and their education would have no effect on him. Their wisdom was but foolishness to his ears. And being given a new name didn't make him forget himself and who he really is or his God. But boy, that luxurious food and excellent wine, if he kept eating like that, he might just forget where home really is. 
it might be so comfortable for Daniel in Babylon that he stops missing the promised land of Judah. So he makes this his point of protest. The ESV study Bible very helpfully says, Daniel and his friends avoided the luxurious diet of the king's table as a way of protecting themselves from being ensnared by the temptations of Babylon. They used their distinctive diet as a way of retaining their distinctive identity as Jewish exiles and avoiding complete assimilation into Babylonian culture. There's not a strong indication. There's no indication really here in the passage that he was like, no, I'm not going to eat that because your food is unkosher. It's not necessarily a kosher argument here, but rather it's a luxury argument here. The king's feast, the king's wine. If I eat that well and that nice stuff all the time, man, I, and you know what? We can relate to this, can't we? There was a brother the other day after church. He said to me, came up to me, put his arm on my shoulder, and he said, Pastor, you know, I just want to thank you for your preaching to me, and I've uh, grown over the years, and blah, 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 blah. It was a nice thing. And then he said to me, he said, you know, one thing I've, I've, I've begun doing since becoming a part of the body here, I've realized that this world is not my home, and I have started praying every day for the return of Christ. I want the Lord to come. You know what's convicting is we're so comfortable eating the rich food and drinking the rich wine of this world, the luxuries and comforts of this world. And man, how often do we pray what that guy prays? We're like, Lord, I mean, we want you to come, but I'm also very comfortable here right now. Babylon is a nice, Right? Daniel knew, man, that's a temptation for me. I don't want all those luxuries. I'll become complacent. So now the question is, would Ashpenaz listen to Daniel? He's like, hey, please, uh, I'd like to not eat the wine and, or eat the food and drink the wine if possible. Would Ashpenaz listen? And it doesn't make sense that he would. We would anticipate, no, he's not going to listen. Because after all, didn't the king... Tell him to do all these things so that they would be assimilated. Daniel's like, hey, would you mind not feeding me those things? I don't want to become a Babylonian. Ashpenaz would respond, uh, Daniel, I'm trying to make you a Babylonian. Right? But what does Ashpenaz say? Let's read in verses 9 and 10. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord my king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. You get what he's saying here, right? Daniel, my man, baby, I'd love to help you here, bud. But if I do what you ask me to do, you realize it's not you that dies, it's me. If you show up before the king and you're a skinny runt and Nebuchadnezzar's like, what's wrong with this guy? Didn't you feed him like I told you to? He, you know, I'm going to be the one left stammering going, I don't know, I don't know, you know, that sort of thing. 
So he puts the problem to Daniel as such. Daniel responds in verses 11 through 13. Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Oh. So Daniel resolves Ashpenaz's problem. He gets over that. He says, okay, Ashpenaz, I understand. I don't want to see you killed before the king. What if I do show up scrawny as a toothpick? You know, I, I understand your predicament. How about this? Let's just test it out for 10 days, no more. I'm going to be here for three years, man. I'm not going to turn into a rail in, in 10 days. If I get a little bit skinnier, you can fatten me up all you want. I won't fight. I won't protest. But just give me 10 days. What do you say? Eh? Well, verse 14, he listened to them in this matter. And he tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than the youths who ate the king's food. You see, this is why Daniel 1 is not about dieting. This is why the whole Daniel fast. Anybody ever heard of the Daniel fast? Let's get real. Anybody done the Daniel fast? Okay, good. I'm with family. <laughs> right? I, I had a buddy of mine, and he's got, um, you know, this unique church of his, and then he just sent me a text. Hey, you're studying the book of Daniel right now, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He said, awesome, man. Our church just started a Daniel fast. And I was like, have you read Daniel 1? And he was like, No. And I said, the guys who did that in Daniel 1 got fatter. And he was like, oh. <laughs> Didn't even know that. Look, that's not what this is about. The point is, you shouldn't get fat on vegetables and water. This was a sign to Ashpenaz that Daniel's God would provide. Daniel's God would do everything that he needed to do, everything that was needful for Daniel to help Daniel not defile himself and become a Babylonian. Daniel's like, look, if I keep eating like this, I'm going to end up being a Babylonian. Help, Lord. I need your help. And God says, I will always give the help that my people need so that they not fall into ruination and idolatry. More on that in a minute. Final verses, verses 17 through 20. As for these youths. God gave them learning. Again, that's the third time we've seen it. God gave Jehoiakim over to, to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Daniel and his friends favor before Ashpenaz. And now God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And the rest of the book of Daniel tells us all about that. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, 
Mishael, and Azariah. So it worked. Therefore, they stood before the king. That just means that they were giving positions in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. You remember how this chapter began? Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to show the world that my gods make the other gods bow. But here at the end of the chapter, he finds these guys who serve the one true and living God ten times more wise and helpful than his own magicians and enchanters following their pagan gods. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. If you don't know who King Cyrus is, he's the one who sent them home. And of course, the moral of that story is God's people outlast the wicked kingdoms of this world. As we close our story, our text, there are three lessons. If you're a note taker, here's where it really gets real. There are three categories, perhaps, of lessons here in this passage in Daniel chapter 1. First category of lessons is lessons about God. Here in Daniel chapter 1, we learn two things that are true about God. Lesson number one, and the most obvious lesson that is true about God is this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. This is the central lesson of this chapter. Daniel 1 is not about dieting. It's not even chiefly about imitating Daniel, though that is indeed an application. Daniel 1 rather centrally proclaims that God is sovereign even in our exile, even when our politicians aren't doing what we want them to, even when we don't even get politicians anymore because somebody else is king. Even in the worst possible circumstances, God is sovereign. It is God who gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. God's sovereign will decreed it and God's sovereign hand accomplished it. It was God who gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. It was God who gave the four Hebrew men learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams because God gave him that understanding. God is sovereign. But God's sovereignty is not at all a comfort to God's people unless they can also know. Lesson two about God. That God is faithful. He's faithful. The events of chapter 1 are irrefutable evidence that God is faithful to his word. For the proof, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said in Isaiah 39, verses 6 and 7, he said to Hezekiah, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, Hezekiah, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, all that's going to be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons 
who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This judgment of God and pronouncement of judgment from God's mouth through the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah is coming true right here in Daniel chapter 1. God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to execute the judgments that he says he's going to execute. He's faithful to punish sin when he says he's going to. But he's also faithful to his precious people whom he loves with a great and irreversible love. Not only does he bring judgment upon the kings of Judah for their sin, but here in chapter 1, God was faithful to those four young men, even in their exile. He gave them the favor that they needed to avoid corruption He gave them the wisdom and skill that they needed to succeed and thrive in that hostile pagan environment. He gave them the fortitude to say, I don't want to defile myself. God was faithful to his chosen people. Thus, you and I can know that God will graciously and faithfully give us who are in Christ all that we need to live out all of our days for his glory. Dear ones, hear me. God is not promising that you get whatever you want. Lord, I feel like if I'm going to keep living here in Newport News, Virginia, that's where I live. If I'm going to keep living here in Pocosin, Virginia, I'm going to need a Tesla. Otherwise, I could become a Babylonian in a moment. That's not the deal that God is making with his people here. You get that, right? But what God is promising and what God does do for Daniel is this. He promises that whatever is honestly and truly necessary so that his people might live out the number of their days for his glory, everything that they really need for that, God will provide. Let me say that again. Here's what is a gospel true promise. Everything that's truly necessary for you and I, Christian people, to live out the total number of our ordained days for his glory, God will provide. How do we know that? Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Anything you honestly need. I don't need a Tesla to live out my days for Christ's glory. But sometimes I do need God. Can you give me favor with this guy? Because he's going to make me do something that will bring my heart to idolatry if you don't give me favor, Lord. He gave Daniel that, didn't he? And you'll never be placed in this position where you're without the grace that God gives to help you avoid such temptation. He'll always give you what you need to live out the entire number of your days for his glory. Even in Babylon, in this way, God is faithful to his precious people. That's what we learn about God. He's sovereign. He's faithful. Category of lessons number two. What do we learn about Babylon? What do we learn about Babylon? 
First lesson I hope is very easy. Babylon is where we live. And I don't just mean Pocosin. I mean Newport News. I mean especially Hampton. <laughs> just kidding. That's where I, I graduated from Kikatan, so that's why I tease them so. Hampton, Newport News, America. All the nations of this world, the world that we live in is Babylon. The book of Revelation describes really just two kingdoms that are in this planet. There's the whole world that the book of Revelation nicknames Babylon. And there's the anti-world called Jerusalem, the church of Jesus Christ. It's either Babylon, which is all around us, the air that we breathe, everything, or the church of Jesus Christ. Daniel is not living in a unique time. You're living in a time very similar to Daniel in that this world is not our home, says the New Testament. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 to the elect exiles, referring to us as if we're in a very similar situation to Daniel. We're in exile. We're not at home because home is when Christ comes again in glory and takes us to the new heavens and new earth. Until then, we are Jerusalem living in Babylon. That's lesson number one. Babylon is where we live. Lesson number two. Babylon is not content to coexist with you. You seen those bumper stickers? Coexist? That's a lie. Babylon wants to rule you. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to bring the gods of Judah into his house to say, See, I rule. And Babylon still wants to do that very thing this day. Now, sometimes they'll say, Hey, we'll play nice. That's not the way it ends up working out. We see Babylon not only wants to rule you, Babylon wants to assimilate you. Babylon is not content to let you be you. Even though that's the saying, the, the cool kids are saying that these days. You do you, boo. One of the teenagers at our church said that to me the other day. And I said, am I boo to you? Is that, is that, is that how we are? You, boo, I'm boo? I'm going with that. Babylon doesn't do you, do you, boo. They do you, do me. You, you become Babylonian. And I'm not giving you an option. All the streaming services are mine. Let's unpack that concept a little bit. How does Babylon want to assimilate and make Babylonians out of you and me? How are they actively working to make Babylonians out of us today? The same four ways. Education. Time. Comfort. Luxury. Doesn't it feel good to be a Babylonian? And identity. Today, you wonder, you turn on the news and certain news services, if you're like thinking, oh, I know which news channel you're talking about. No, you don't. I'm talking about all of them. You turn on the news, and what is streaming through the 24-7 news cycle? Babylonian truths. This is what we want you to think. This is what we want you to believe. This is what we want you to get upset about, mad about, care about. Have you ever noticed the effect that the news has on you? 
all of a sudden you find yourself getting really mad over something that some guy on Fox News says, and it has absolutely nothing to do with your actual life. You become so upset over it that you stop caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ in your local congregation, even though maybe so-and-so had just had a baby and they need a meal, but you're so distracted by this, this global news event and they're really upset about it and you want to take up this cause. Did you ever wonder why that happens? It's Babylon. The streaming services are teaching you what to believe. I remember being uh, a young man watching the sitcom called Will and Grace. Anybody ever heard of that sitcom, Will and Grace? Will and Grace is how Babylon taught us to not think that homosexuality was sin. It started with Will and Grace before, without, before the whole movement which said, let's legalize this stuff and all that stuff. The very first thing is, hey, how about you just giggle at it? How about you just laugh at it in entertainment form? And little by little, Babylon made its way so that now all of a sudden our nation has capitulated entirely to the sexual revolution. Babylon. And it's working on our people in the church. I've already preached this sermon and somebody came up to me after that sermon and said, what do you mean? Do you really think it's wrong to be a homosexual? And I said, have you read your Bible? I said, well, yeah, I mean, I've read my Bible, but I just think, you know, maybe, you know, huh? And I said, why do you think that? When you say, eh, you know, maybe, ha, ha, ha. What's making you have that, that moment of wavering? Is it something else you've read in your Bible? Or is it something that you've heard over the airwaves? That's Babylon, dear one. It's getting our kids the universities were sending our kids to Babylonian schools and so on and so forth. Education. And it's in every vein of society. You're like, you're picking on one or two things. It's everywhere. Education. Time. Babylon doesn't worry about trying to make this thing happen overnight. They know, hey, I got three years in Daniel's day. In ours, I got a whole lifetime. I'm just going to wear you down by my consistent, persistent education and streaming of these things. Now, here's my question too. How have we seen or perceived Babylon's influence in our lives recently, one, one way that we've seen it at our church, at Reformation Christian Fellowship, is how are we going to respond to things like coronavirus? How are we going to respond to the necessity of the local gathering when the government says, no, you shouldn't do that. We don't want you doing that. We're not sure that that feels essential to your life. We had to say, okay, are we going to let Babylon tell us what's essential or are we going to let God's word tell us what's essential? Now, please understand. I understand that there are people, we've got them in our congregation, who have significant uh, health concerns that make them a high-risk person. And, you know, by all means, we bless them and say, we've got a beautiful live stream. Enjoy it. I'll Zoom call you later. We'll have a marvelous time. You know? And I understand that that's... I'm not trying to belittle significant, serious health risks, but the idea anymore these days is the man the church should just stop gathering as a whole a depreciation of the essentiality of the congregation hearing god's word gathering together man that message doesn't come from the word beloved that's babylon there are significant exceptions of course but the belief that church isn't essential well that's babylon
comfort, luxury. This one I find particularly convincing. There are two books that I think are prophetic of our time. One of them is 1984, and the other one is called A Brave New World. Each of them is kind of a philosophical approach for how Babylon is trying to take over now. 1984 says Babylon's trying to take over with hostility, with, with uh, tyrannical control and Marxism. And that's true right here. Daniel chapter 1. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. On the other hand, a brave new world says that the way that Babylon is taking over the world and brainwashing everybody is through comfort, through luxury, through pleasure. They're going to make being in Babylon so comfortable and easy and pleasurable that you don't even miss your old identity as a citizen of Judah. And that's the way it is with us. We love living in this world, don't we? Boy, it sure is nice. When we leave here, we're probably going to pop on some football and it's going to be great. Especially for me because I'm a Buccaneers fan. It's going to be a good day. I don't know who we're playing, but we're going to win. <laughs> And I love watching football. I love the ease and comfort of streaming services. I love the comfort and ease that we have in our society. And man, you know, it is so easy to love this so much that I stop earnestly praying, Lord, this world is ruined and awful and terrible and rotten. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you like that too? When's the last time you prayed that? Or do you love you some Babylon like I do sometimes? Lastly, identity. Oh, man. Babylon wants you to, it wants to tell you who you are and what's the center of your identity. They're always fighting about this. Babylon wants to say the center of your identity is the color of your skin. Babylon wants to say the center of your identity is your your sexual orientation and preferences. Babylon wants to say the center of your identity is the party that you affiliate with in politics. If any of that is central in your mind to who you are, and if any of that is the core essence of who you are as an individual, you know where you learn that? Babylon. In Christ, we are a new creation. And all that has passed away, and behold, a new has come. In Christ, our identity is assigned to us, according to Christ in Matthew chapter 28, when we are immersed into or baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the center of our identity. I'm a child of the Heavenly Father. I am washed by the blood of the divine eternal Son who became man for me. And I am sealed and filled with the Spirit of God and cannot be snatched out of the Father's hands. That's the center of our identity. But boy, do we forget that because Babylon tells us who we are and sometimes we listen. That's the second category of lessons. The very final, and this one's very brief. It's lessons regarding Daniel. And if you haven't already figured this out, Daniel is representative of you and me, right? Daniel is representative of those who are by God's sovereign grace chosen, preserved, and faithful. Lesson number one is Daniel is faithful. 
Aren't you glad that he doesn't capitulate to Babylon here in this text? And if you think, maybe you grew up singing the song, Dare to be a Daniel. Maybe you've heard sermons called, Dare to be a Daniel. Let me tell you, this sermon is not called, Dare to be a Daniel. Right? Because Daniel is not the hero of this story. Daniel didn't resist Babylonian temptation and wiles because he's such a noble and righteous individual with inner fortitude to stand against the enemy. Daniel resisted the wiles of Babylon because God gave Daniel favor. The lesson about Daniel is this, dear ones. If you're blessed enough to be a Daniel, then God will be just as faithful to you to keep you from apostasy as he was to keep Daniel from apostasy. God will keep you from the clutches of Babylon just as he kept Daniel from the clutches. He will give you all that you need to live out your life for his glory. Daniel knows his God, and he makes himself known to you, fellow Daniels. Daniel knows his own weaknesses and why it is that he can't partake of that food and drink without going sideways. And likewise, we are part of a body of Christ where, beloved, we say to one another, hey, you shouldn't go anywhere near that temptation. We know our weaknesses. But finally, second and last lesson is this. Daniel, or us, we out last Babylon Babylon loves to be all like we're the mighty power we're here we're the ones in charge we're the ones who rule but you know what every Christian soul can say about or and to the wicked world around us we'll be here long after you're gone and under God's wrath for all eternity According to Revelation chapter 19, there will be a day in which all of us are gathered around to celebrate God's righteous judgment over Babylon. Babylon, the great, the wicked world, is going to be cast into the lake of fire. And we will all say, according to Revelation 19, hallelujah, hallelujah. You're worthy, Lord. Righteous and true are all your judgments. Just are all your ways. That wicked world and its system tempted me many days, and you are right to cast it forever into the lake of fire, and you are kind to preserve me, your Daniel, from falling into its snares. Can we pray, friends? Father, I thank you.